0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author and investigative journalist Louise Milligan. Louise joined me to talk about her latest book, Witness, an investigation into the brutal cost of seeking justice. Louise goes into great depth around the experience that witnesses and complainants have when they're cross-examined in criminal proceedings, particularly in cases relating to child sexual abuse and sexual assault. If the subjects discussed in this conversation bring up any issues for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 Seven three two, and you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on Three Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and it's my great pleasure and delight to welcome onto this program Louise Milligan, who is an investigative reporter for ABC TV's Four Corners program. She's also the best-selling author of Cardinal which won the Walkley Book Award and also she's been the recipient of the 2019 Press Freedom Medal. She's covered a huge number of issues in her life as an investigative journalist and no doubt you would be familiar with Louise's work if you are a viewer of ABC's programs, including the 7.30 Report, which Louise worked on prior. So we're going to be, for the purposes of this conversation, talking about Louise's new book that was released at the end of last year, and it's called Witness, an Investigation into the Brutal Cost of Seeking Justice. And it's really a fascinating read and something um, that I'm sure people will find quite gripping because Louise tells this story very much from an insightful first person account and she's drawing on a great depth and range of knowledge. So I welcome Louise now. Thank you so much for joining us and it's really wonderful to be speaking with you. It's
1: great to, to be with you too,
0: Amy. Thanks for having me. Well, I've got to say, uh, as someone who actively consumes media, it's pretty impossible to have not known your work, Louise. And um, I know that's the case for many other people. And of course, being an investigative journalist and having that really special role in the field of journalism is something that not every or many journalists would ever get the opportunity to do. And to have that real privilege of being let into the dark corners of of people's lives and exposing truths. First of all, I wanted to set the scene in terms of your career and your experiences and get a sense of how you ended up in investigative journalism and what your experience has been in this particular field of journalism.
1: Well, I started out as a journalist after doing a law degree uh, at Monash Uh, The law arts, I did honours in politics. Um, I was sort of always interested in journalism or law as potential career paths and realised, you know, about halfway through my law degree that I didn't really see myself, you know, being a solicitor working, you know, on trust accounts and so on. And I decided to become a journalist, went to RMIT, did a graduate diploma in journalism, and I started my career at the Australian newspaper, which is quite a different paper to what it is now. And I just loved it from the start. And I remember getting that sort of like that digging bug that you get. It's like, you know, some people describe it as story lust where you can't stop, you know, you work all hours of the day because you want to kind of crack the story. And I remember the first time it ever happened, it was um, in relation to, hilariously, the Peter Reith telecard affair. So this was so long ago that people were still using telecards in phone boxes. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember, like, finding, like, a key source in in, in that scandal so this was in 2000 I I think and I remember being so excited I was out with my friends at um, Cherry Bar which I think is now closed but back in those days like before insurance companies brought in you know rules about people sitting in dangerous places we were all sitting on a window ledge that was quite high up and as I say I was so excited that I actually fell out of the window (laughs) (laughs) But I, because of my law degree, you know, which I sort of finished under sufferance, um, but I'd always been interested in the policy issues around law and in the, um, you know, the sort of issues around justice and also in people's stories, I was very keen on covering courts and I lobbied pretty vigorously um to, to to cover courts when I moved up to Sydney with the paper. I had been doing education and I got sick of speaking to teachers because I don't really like that they tend to tell you what to do, you know, and I don't really like being told what to do. And um, anyway, I started doing courts and I covered some of the biggest murder trials of the day and like big cases like the Rene Rivkin Mm. inside a trading case and I, you know the um, Janelle Patton murder inquest on Norfolk Island and so on and um, I was just hooked and I was fascinated and also moved by what I saw and the trauma that I was sort of bearing witness to every day in those courts and we didn't cover many sexual offences at the time because they don't t- tend to be as sort of big stories unless they're about someone famous, you know. There the, the, are a dime a dozen going through these depressing kind of um, courtrooms, um, and but we did cover some, and and I there are details from a big child sex case that I covered at the time that I still have flashbacks to that I don't think I'll ever scrape those awful memories of what those children suffered from my brain and that sort of became an interest and after I was at the Australian I was I was sort of poached by Channel 7 um, to go and do state politics um, for them and um, I did that for a few years and then I came up I came back to Melbourne because I was having my second child and I didn't want to You know, there was already someone else doing politics and I didn't want to have to cover just the story of the day. And so I sort of created this job for myself as an investigative journalist covering freedom of information. So basically I would dig through reports and find things that I should sort of seek out from the government And that led to breaking some big stories um, for Seven. I was sort of only working a few days, like three days a week because I had two small children, but I loved it. I loved the independence of it. And through that, I got a job at 7.30. And, um, you know, I've, I've never sort of looked back since then. I absolutely love being an investigative journalist because I like, as I say, the independence and the autonomy of it. But I also like building these sort of long-term relationships with sources, with people who have experienced injustice of one form or another and building on the sort of skills, you know, as a law graduate and as someone who covered courts, I've always been interested in that part of journalism. And that's what sort of like led me to the Child Abuse Royal Commission, which I started covering in about 2015 and that led me to George Pell who Mm. was you know the big story of that commission and along the way I began investigating him and that's all you know water under the bridge now because of course he was tried and convicted and the conviction remained on appeal but then of course the High Court ultimately acquitted him. I was a, a witness in his Case because I was what was known as the witness of first complaint, which is the first person in the world that one of the complainants who said he abused him as a child had told about their experience. And so the defense used that as a way of trying to pick apart the cases of some of the other complainants. Um, because I was the only journalist who had to actually track down these men. And therein (laughs) lies the whole sort of basis for witness, which was one of the most excoriating experiences of my entire life, being cross-examined for a day by Cardinal Pell's Defence counsel, Robert Richter QC.
0: Indeed. And uh, it is pretty confronting reading as well and very extensive and lengthy. So I can't even imagine the personal experience of sitting up there and, um, you know, doing that and being so present and having to actively think the whole time under the barrage of questions that were put to you. And we will get into the detail of that, but you did just mention before about the fact that you were the first person that one of these complainants told in terms of the alleged abuse that they had suffered. And so, you know, you're clearly in a position of trust and also seemingly in a, a really important position of trust because people spoke to you about these experiences in their lives that were really dark and had followed them around for their childhood and into their adulthood. And uh, many of these people hadn't actually revealed these alleged instances of abuse to many people, if not anyone at all, which as you say in this book is not uncommon to, you know, have this very long delay of reporting an alleged sexual abuse in childhood. So from that perspective of being In a very special position of trust. I mean it probably is not a coincidence that people chose to speak with you Louise because they felt that they could trust you as a journalist. How did you navigate these kind of relationships when you're dealing with people who are
1: in a very vulnerable situation? I think it's always being mindful of the fact that they are in a vulnerable situation and that it's very difficult for them to speak about their experiences, and allowing them to speak in their own time and in a way that they feel comfortable. I am a big advocate of trauma informed journalism. So recognising the trauma that people have gone through, and giving them power in that conversation. And treating them with sensitivity and above all kindness and being genuine and demonstrating that you are genuine and assuring them that you will protect them and you won't betray them. That doesn't mean that you don't subject what they say to journalistic rigour and scrutiny and fact-check everything within an inch of its life because these are very serious allegations and let's move outside Pell but in the broad these are people who are making serious allegations about someone that you know if they go into the public domain will destroy that person's life so you have to take it very very seriously and you have to subject it to really rigorous scrutiny but that doesn't mean being dispassionate. You know, I think it's about having that balance of treating them like a human being and also recognising that false complaints are extremely rare. Research that was tended to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse showed that they are largely made up of people who are floridly mentally ill and people who are involved in family court disputes so children who have one parent sort of pitting them against the other the other thing is for them to to decide to come forward to the media and to go through the criminal justice system is such an enormous step it is such a terrible thing to go through it takes years um, the criminal justice system that is that, you know, you would have to be a special sort of mentally ill to continue with that if it wasn't true. And the other thing I would say about it is that I have, because I have spoken to hundreds of complainants of child sexual abuse and adult sexual assault. I have spoken to one or two who have subsequently turned out to be making a false complaint. Those people were floridly mentally ill and it was very apparent very early on in my rigorous fact-checking process that things didn't stack up. There were holes, very large holes in the story very early on. So I just want people to know that because I do think that Defence Council in particular and certain aspects of the media who are protecting powerful accused predators make out like there are all of these people running around making false complaints when, in fact, that's not true. But despite the fact that false complaints are incredibly rare, all of the international research shows, the number of complaints that end up in convictions is much lower than other similar types of crimes, for example, assault or robbery or murder. <laughs> Although, you know, in that in, in a murder case, the complainant, it's obvious there is no complainant, you know, if the person is dead. But these crimes are underreported to police because people understand And appreciate how difficult it is to go through this process and they experience a lot of shame and they experience a lot of fear so they're underreported to police and then they are often dropped early in the process and they are often they often result in hung juries and they often result in acquittals. Now that doesn't mean that the people who Have committed these crimes are innocent.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, I guess, what makes things so traumatizing. As well is the fact that in many cases, there isn't a real sense of closure, or at least a real sense that you, you know, achieved what you imagine would be achieved, potentially. And you do give examples in the book of um, individuals who have experienced these situations where you're almost just left hanging, really, in terms of what the legal process gave you in the end.
1: Mm. And I would say that um, particularly when it comes to complainants of historical or, you know, other child sexual offences that the most common reason that I've experienced for them coming forward is they want to protect other children. They're concerned that this person is in the community, Mm. you know, so it's not about a sense of vengeance generally. It is about a sense of closure and, and a sense of, someone they 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 generally want someone to actually admit to it but of course these guys never do or very rarely do unless you know the odds are so overwhelmingly stacked against them and generally they're not well-resourced defendants who have you know a bucket of money to keep appealing and appealing if things don't go their way Mm. I
0: was reminded of some statistics that you shared in the book from an analysis by The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald newspapers, which was looking at sexual assault statistics and was published in September 2019, and I'm quoting here from the book, which found that of the 52,396 sexual assaults reported to New South Wales police between 2009 and 2018, Charges were only laid in 12,894 cases. And of those cases, 7,629 went to court. And of those cases, 2,308 were dropped at trial and 1,494 were found not guilty. The remaining 3,827 or 50% of the total that went to court were found guilty. And then as you say that's just 7% of the cases that originally were reported to police i mean when you do think about it in those terms and you look at how it steps across the the system from reporting all the way through to court you know it is pretty shocking it's
1: it, i mean if those figures aren't an example of why the system is fundamentally broken i don't know you know what are the royal commission When I was um, writing my first book, Cardinal, I remember speaking to one of the senior lawyers at the Royal Commission and he said to me, we kind of lead people down the garden path here because they have this really good experience, you know, Mm. and it's not like that in the criminal justice system. And he felt quite guilty about that because they were respected and loved in a way. In that environment, I mean, I was really struck by it the first time I went to Ballarat to listen to the hearings in the Royal Commission. And there was just this sense of a community and, you know, an institution wrapping its arms around people who had been so afraid to come forward and who, you know, some of whom had never told anyone. Um, about their experience before they got up there and, you know, gave their evidence and were still doing it under a pseudonym because for some reason the victims of these crimes get tarnished by the crimes and they are subjected to disbelief and gaslighting. Mm. I remember that day so well because I had just come back from, the executions of Myron Sukumaran and Andrew Chan in Indonesia, the Bali Nine guys, I was very traumatised by that experience covering that for many months. And I, yeah, I mean I had had to sort of actually sort of seek counselling because it was so upsetting. And I remember coming back and my boss saying to me, how would you feel about going and, you know, Covering the Child Abuse Royal Commission and uh, because I had grown up Catholic and had left the church but had always had an abiding interest in these issues um, and I said, yeah. And so I went along and, you know, people kind of said to me at the time, like, oh, my God, why are you throwing yourself into another, you know, pile of secondary trauma? But that experience of seeing how these people were finding their voices and feeling accepted and loved, people who were really broken, it was one of the most moving things I've ever experienced. The contrast between that and the criminal justice system could not be more profound. Yeah,
0: it is stark when you lay it out like that you're obviously in a really special position to get to witness those hearings and to then be able to make clear comparisons as an observer but also as someone who was on the witness stand yourself This segues perfectly into some of the key issues around the criminal justice system and how complainants have been treated and are treated, particularly under cross-examination, and you go into great depth about this and you look through court transcripts and, in some cases, court recordings where that's available. And particularly what was interesting in the reports that you mention was that under cross examination? It was a feeling of re traumatization, and that not only were these complainants having to relive their trauma and recount it in excruciating detail over and over again, and being subjected to obviously very careful scrutiny in terms of trying to find inconsistencies in their testimony, but also. I remember when I was reading this book that they would often say that there was this feeling like you were being disbelieved again, that when the alleged crime first happened, they would feel shame and feel like no one's going to believe me. And often, you know, some people would treat their, their recounting of what has happened to them in that way. And so then subjecting them under this very, at times, extremely harsh cross-examination felt like they were being accused of lying and not just the actual wording of it, but the tone and the actions and the body language and the court environment, it seems to add a lot of trauma to the situation. So I'd love to get a sense from you about the cross-examination process, which you do go through in great detail with many examples in this book, and to share with us what is it about this cross-examination process, particularly the main actors, the judge, the barrister, and of course the complainant and what is it that makes this so re-traumatizing
1: well speaking to both uh, i'll I'll call them victims because these are people who you know they have uh, convictions in their cases speaking to them and also to psychologists who routinely see these people if you think about it it's <laughs> the the tone of this sort of stern disbelieving often sarcastic barrister, defence counsel, is kind of what their abuser led them to believe would always kind of happen. And and in lots of cases, the defence counsel actually reminds them of their abuser. They feel like they're being abused again because they were threatened, they were told they wouldn't be believed you know, they were sort of isolated from their community, they're up there alone, and all of the sort of fears that they had about coming forward are being played out and that's happening at the same time that they have to relive the worst thing typically that has ever happened to them in their lives, that they haven't really spoken about very often in their lives, like, you know, often They might have told a friend here or there, but they haven't gone into the detail. They'll have told the police, but the police are actually pretty good now at trauma-informed policing when it comes to victims of sexual crimes. They've come a really long way. The bar has not come a long way at all. <laughs> so barristers will routinely tell you, oh, in the bad old days, they used to beat up the witnesses and it was terrible and all that sort of thing. But we've 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 moved on from that. Juries don't like it and all that sort of thing. Well, why is it that victims are routinely telling the Royal Commission, Law Reform Commissions, the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry, psychologists, friends, journalists, me, you know, that... It is still happening. And why is it that the transcripts show that it's still happening? And, you know, the audio, as, as as you mentioned, I mean, I've got the audio of an entire cross-examination of a 15-year-old that's in the book shows that it's still happening. They are speaking to people in a way that no one else speaks to anyone in any other forum in society. I mean, the only other example that I can think of where you are disparaged in this way or humiliated is Parliament. But there's a sense of, you know, it being a bit sort of jovial in that in that kind of forum. Yeah. And also when when someone's being grilled in Parliament, it's not about them being raped as a child, you know. Mm. It's unbelievable that, that Defence Council continue to get away with it. And There are, as I talk about in the book, legislative protections theoretically in place in Section 41 of the Evidence Act, which um, prohibits improper questioning. Now, that improper questioning goes to tone as well as substance, you know, and I think it's like harassing and belittling type of tone. Well, I'm sorry, but (laughs) when I had my own cross-examination, The tone was harassing and belittling the entire day. It never stopped being that. And it's true that the magistrate did intervene on a number of occasions and the Crown Prosecutor also intervened occasionally and did invoke Section 41 of the Evidence Act. But, I mean, really, if they were sort of really pulling him up on his tone, you know, the interventions never would have stopped and I think that that's also part of the problem that that crown prosecutors and judicial officers get worn down by defence counsel who just are relentless. And you know, I spoke to members of the legal profession who said, and and this has this has been raised in forums like the Royal Commission and law reform commissions, etc., that um, judicial officers. Are concerned about appeal points being raised that they might have an apprehended bias against the accused. That is what happened in the Pell Committal proceeding, despite the fact that I would say that the magistrate acted with absolute integrity and fairness from everything that I saw. So it's difficult, and Crown prosecutors. Some of them like to play a low-profile type of game where they kind of like give the defence enough rope and let them hang themselves Um, and so they want the jury to see the complainant or the witness being bullied and to feel sorry for them. Mm. So I spoke to one victim who told me that, you know, she was told by the Crown Prosecutor that basically he let the defense counsel go because seeing her distressed and she was so distressed that she was having nosebleeds was actually valuable to his case as a prosecutor and prosecutors have also told me that that you know there's nothing worse than a wooden victim so sometimes you just let the defense counsel go so These poor people who are reliving this awful trauma who have no legal defence of their own are like lambs to the slaughter in this process and that's why one of the key reforms that I advocate for in Witness is people, complainants of sexual crimes, having a lawyer in the court, someone who can explain the process to them because so many of them have no idea and the prosecutor is not acting for them and they don't understand that I mean I had one young woman I spoke to who was you know she was a really great young woman who she had secured a a conviction in her case but had been really been through the ringer with the defense counsel a, a man who's quite notorious for you know, going hard on witnesses, and is quite proud of the fact. And um, she was saying to me, "Oh, my lawyer talking about the prosecutor." So no one had actually explained to her, or it hadn't become clear enough to her, that that the prosecution is not acting for you. They are trying to prove a crime beyond reasonable doubt. They're acting for the state, and different prosecutors have different versions of what that means. Some of the prosecutors that I spoke to, I will say most often the women, see it as they have more of a role to make sure that their witness is properly prepared, that they don't just come in five minutes beforehand and you know give them a ticker box, sort of this is what you have to do, that they, they go through everything with them. But a lot of them don't do that and a lot of the time it's because they don't have the time or resources the the county court in victoria district court in new south wales it, it can be a bit of a sausage factory you know mm. and a lot of prosecutors you know privately sort of expressed their frustration with me about that you know so it's not it's not about unfairly blaming them and that's why i think that taking that out of their hands would actually be quite beneficial and and giving the complainant a lawyer who isn't at the bar table because the complainant isn't a party to the proceedings. It's the state against the accused in a criminal matter. But having them in court to make sure that Section 41 of the Evidence Act isn't breached, that their human rights aren't breached under the Charter of Human Rights that Victoria has, and to prepare them. In the way that I was prepared, I mean, I was um, being a well-known employee of the ABC in a high-profile case, I mean, really probably the most high-profile case of the decade, let's face it, I was given so much support from the corporation and also from my publisher uh, at the time but also I was given the advice of one of Australia's best QCs, um, Jack Rush, which was enormously helpful. You know, he wasn't coaching me because you're not allowed to coach a witness, but he was explaining the process to me and explaining really basic things like, you know, if he is demanding a yes or no answer from you and you truly believe that the question is not best answered by a yes or a no, You can turn to the judicial officer and say, I'm terribly sorry, Your Honour, but I cannot answer this with a yes or a no. If, you know, Defence counsel would like to rephrase the question, I can answer it more fully and more truthfully, you know. I mean, things like that. I mean, as if some complainant who's had no legal advice, who is often broken who, you know, life has often gone off the rails for them. Often they turn to substance abuse, addiction. Some of them end up in jail, especially if they were uh, abused as a child. They they go on a trajectory from an early age because a fundamental part of their psyche has been broken by this. So then they find themselves in these courts as perfect fodder for defence counsel with no one there to look out for them you know the, the the prosecution is there the police are there but really there's not really much that they will do or can do a lot of the time and they're just at sea and I spoke to psychologists who said it takes years of therapy to get people to the place that they can report and that they can go through this. And it takes years of therapy for them to recover. And many of them are suicidal after this process. I personally, through my journalism, have got to know people whose family members have suicided during this process. It can't continue, you know. It really, really can't. We cannot ask people to summon the mountain of courage that it takes to do this and then treat them with such disdain. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: there are quite a few chapters in this book talking about and recounting conversations that you've had with barristers in particular, I'm thinking of mostly men of course there are some women, but as you highlight, the fact is that even in Victoria, which is doing slightly better than New South Wales, for example, there are still so few women who are SILKS and barristers as well. So these are self-employed legal professionals and there are, you know, a number of barriers that women face to being a barrister and you know, obviously one needs to receive briefings in order to get these jobs. So, you know, networking is a really important important part and fitting into the culture presumably is another part and you highlight the types of people that are barristers and you know the demographics of the people as barristers and that so many of them are more mature aged white males and that that does have an effect on culture and because that's the predominant group of people who are within this profession so i'd love to get a sense from you in terms of the barristers that you spoke with What was the kind of range of barristers in terms of their response to your questions about, well, don't you feel like maybe you're not being fair on these people? Don't you think maybe there's a different way, a different approach that you could take to get the
1: same outcome? I think typically, as I mentioned before, they would all tell you that things have moved on and juries don't like it if they behave like this anymore. But Some of them were were sort of more honest about it. And the thing that really fascinated me was the trauma that they themselves suffered, the unmet trauma, secondary trauma of hearing and seeing these disgusting things over and over again and how they just kind of buried it. And a lot of them admitted to having a drinking problem And talked about high profile barristers who had drinking problems like one who was it was repeatedly volunteered to me drank half a bottle of scotch a day and started before he actually went into court to get him to the place where he could bully people in the way that he does and in terms of the gender sort of breakdown there are more men aged over 50 in victoria at the bar than any women And in New South Wales, there are twice as many men aged over 50 than any women. And they came through at a time where there weren't these uh, legislative restrictions on what they could do and say. And there was one barrister that I spoke to who talked about, you know, the measure of whether you'd done a good job was whether the complainant threw a Bible at you, like how many Bibles have you had thrown at you? So even though things have changed from a legislative sense and from a, you know, the courts, you know, have much more rules around what you can and can't do. And a lot of these guys say, oh, it's really hard to get a conviction now. Well, that's just not true because the numbers don't bear that out. But even though those things have happened, if you have come through at a time where really terrible behaviour towards a witness was perfectly acceptable and all part of a day's work, then I think it's really hard to kind of turn that ship around. And, and I think a lot of the time that they aren't actually aware of what they're doing, but also they don't belong to an institution like, you know, for example, Victoria Police, where, you know, they have people coming in and they regularly are trained about better ways of treating people who have been through trauma. They don't see it as part of their job's they work for themselves. Um, they do have what's known as CPD, continuing professional development, but they don't have to choose to do anything about trauma or sexual assault or anything like that. They just have to have a certain number of points that they can say that they have done for the year. So they can go through their career and not change at all. And I think, you know, from a gender point of view as well, I, I'm, look, I. I really think it's important to note that you know women aren't necessarily like you know darlings <laughs> towards um towards victims, and men aren't necessarily awful, but I just think that women bring a different perspective you know, and women are more likely in a less serious sense perhaps to be uh victims of these sorts of crimes. We as women have been walking through the world being ogled at, being groped, you know, in nightclubs, having people flash at us at railway stations, all of those sorts of things. We know what men are capable of. And I think a lot of men can have gone through, you know, if they were not victims of any sort of child sexual offence. They can have gone through their whole life and never had anything like this happen to them. And, in fact, I remember in the Pell appeal case, one of the appeal judges, the dissenting judge, who the High Court ultimately agreed with his legal opinion, but he talked about how one of the offences, which was an allegation of groping in a corridor, um, that it was implausibly brazen because, you know, there were other people in the corridor and it couldn't have happened. Well, as I say, ultimately the high court acquitted of that and the other offence. But I just felt like saying to to that judge, Your Honour, speak to some women in your life (laughs) because this sort of stuff happens all the time, everywhere. Every single girlfriend I have will have experienced that. And we all sort of talked about that at the time. So I think those sort of Life experiences might help to shape how women behave in the courts, and as I say, that doesn't mean that there aren't women who are bullies. And I think that it might also help to shape women's running of courtrooms as as judicial officers as well. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: Indeed. Well, I wanted to mention one of the things that you bring out, which is that these barristers talk about the presumption of innocence as being this really noble driver of what they're doing and, you know, everyone is entitled to that and, of course, that is the foundation of the criminal justice system. So, of course, I don't think anyone is disputing that. But as you say, people do have different approaches and you do outline some of the different approaches that barristers have taken as well as the judicial officers and how they might intervene using those rules but um, just to close out the conversation maybe on your own experience and how you then compare it to the 15-year-old you were talking about who was cross-examined by the exact same QC, the same barrister. I mean it is quite a rare position that you're in to have been a witness in a proceeding and then to have that point of comparison that I presume would be pretty rare and then to write about it. So I just wanted to get your personal insight into that and what you took away from it and I guess how that propelled you on to examine this in greater depth
1: in the book. It was fascinating. So after my cross-examination by Robert Richter, I was told that I had done a really good job. And, you know, I feel like he didn't get the better of me. But the next day, I mean, I've said this many times I lay in bed and I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't get up to get a glass of water. I was humming with trauma. um, And it was sort of like this trauma that I wasn't lying there going, oh, he did this and then he did that. I just, it was like a physical experience. And that was such a politicising moment for me. And I just thought I have to write about this when I recover from this and when, of course, this case is finally dispensed with. Not about Pell, you know, I've already written about him, but about what this does to complainants and victims and then just coincidentally I was contacted by the mother of a young man called Paris Street and that was actually that was before I gave my evidence and I was in the throes of preparing for that which was a huge as I write about in the book huge huge undertaking because I had to you know really just there was so much um, documentary material to prepare and legal meetings to have and so on and I kind of forgot about her like I I said I'd get back to her and I forgot about her and then in October 2019 her son the victim Paris contacted me himself and I it was by Twitter and for some reason I didn't see the message and he knew who my husband was and he contacted my husband and my husband said, you need to talk to this kid, you know. And so he was the St Kevin's victim and we did a Four corner story about that which was, you know, very, very well received and led to massive change thanks to Paris Street's bravery at that school where the entire leadership team was let go and numerous teachers, I think it's up to nine or ten now, because of a culture at that school of protecting alleged perpetrators instead of children. And Paris was the victim of a number of grooming offences by an athletics coach who sent him disgusting text messages and said absolutely revolting things, which I won't repeat on radio, but you can read about in the book in his home um, when Paris was only you know, a teenager. He was cross-examined by Robert Richter. And I was immediately curious to see the transcript of the cross-examination when Paris told me that Richter had cross-examined him. But because it was in the magistrate's court, it was not transcribed. But he said, but I've got a tape. And so I listened to this thing and I could not believe it. I could not believe that a 15-year-old boy was being spoken to in precisely the same way as, you know, an investigative journalist in her 40s with all the sort of protections and privileges and, you know, years of experience and law degree and all of those things that I have. And the fact that, you know, I was kind of considered fair game, you know, they were out to try and get me to thereby sort of destroy the case, that he could speak to a 15-year-old in that same way. It, It was just shocking. I'll never forget listening to it for the first time. I just felt so sad for Paris, you know, and look, it's what, 60 years down the track now. And Paris is still not over it. He's still smarting. And, in fact, around about the time that I was writing Witness, and and this is included in the book, he wrote a letter to Mr Richter begging him to understand what he called the cognitive annihilation of my 15-year-old brain by him. And Richter got back to him within... It was, you know, an hour and 20 minutes. It was very quickly. And the reply just floored me. It was basically, you know, stop defining yourself as a victim. I've had members of my family who've been through experiences that you can't even imagine, you know. Stop defining yourself as a victim and make something of your life. And I... I just, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, could you not reach into your heart and find some empathy and kindness for this young man? Paris is not a victim. He's a hero. And that's what hundreds of people who contacted Four Corners after our program said. A very kind viewer agreed to do it for me. It was a booklet of all the lovely things that had been said about Paris by our viewers on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, so on. Mm. And it was 72 pages long. Oh, amazing. So, and, and, you know, over and over again they said, about they talked about his bravery, his courage, his, you know, the fact that he was a hero. He doesn't define himself as a victim but he is really, really scarred not just by the court experience, which he had no preparation for whatsoever, but by the the, the way he was treated by this defence counsel, but also by the institutional betrayal by his school and its community. And, you know, again, you know, he was a teenager who was a straight-A student and had a really fantastic life ahead of him, and he struggles every day now. Yeah. And he's luckier than a lot of other victims because he comes from a nice middle-class family, went to a nice middle-class school and, and as I say, is um, academically very bright. So what happens to the people that aren't? Well, I can tell you what happens because <laughs> they, they, they write to me all the time and they tell me about how their lives have been destroyed by this and their faith. Injustice and the system and humanity has been destroyed by this. And that includes people, many people who have had convictions. So they've just walked away, although the reason that they came forward in the first place has been achieved. They got quote unquote justice. Their perpetrator was called to account, but they were so bruised by the process that in the end they wondered whether it was really worth it. And again, what a terrible indictment on the system. And I just hope, like, I really, really want, I really want lawyers to read Witness, and they are. And I'm getting lots of wonderful feedback, and that's really, really fantastic to hear. And I couldn't have written Witness without the cooperation and honesty of a lot of barristers, you know, who opened up their hearts to me in, in, in lots of ways. And, you know, i I really like barristers. Like I, I sort of, I don't want it to seem like, you know, unless like this anti-lawyer person, you know, I've relied on them as sources all my journalistic career. I find them entertaining and interesting and smart and all of those things, but I want them to look into their hearts and think about what if this was your child or your sister or your wife, who was coming before this court. And I remember that one of them who featured in the book, John Desmond, cried on SBS when he was asked that very question. Why wouldn't he advise his daughter to disclose to police and go through the system? And he said, because of people like me.
0: Yeah. I remember seeing that at the time and it was a really striking exchange. And I've got to say it doesn't come across that you hate lawyers or barristers, that they come across as very endearing characters who have really interesting interests and and ways of interacting and engaging with people. So I found that of real value that you were able to, to draw on them and to draw on, as you say, their honesty about how things do run and, of course, the other people involved in the legal system that you also spoke with in this book Louise, I don't think it would be an understatement to say that you have to read the book (laughs) to really get the full picture of what you've done here, which it's just so extensive and so wonderfully engaging. And it's obviously a call to arms and action um, in terms of Things that can be changed. And that is another thing that we've mentioned here that is also drawn out in the book. So I want to say a big thank you to you for your journalism, for this book, and for your time here today. And um, thank you so much for doing this work on behalf of so many people who do appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much, Amy. I really appreciate the time. And yeah, I ask people please, please read it and please, you know, make it known to policymakers and other institutions that this system needs to change.
0: Mm. And I should just mention that it won the People's Choice Award in the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. So a big congratulations on that.
1: Another great endorsement of this book. Yeah, thank you. I'm really, really grateful to everyone who voted for it. I think, you know, this community are very grateful and loyal people. So um, it was lovely to win that award and, uh, yeah, have that endorsement of work that is very close to my heart.
0: Well, thank you so much, Louise. Thanks, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.